1: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with...
0: Genevieve Koski.
1: And Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson has used her talents for deception and intrigue to slip in with a film spotting crew for their top 10 films of the year show, but her nefarious plot will eventually fall apart and she'll join us next time. On the first half of this episode, we discuss the talent of Mr. Ripley, Anthony Minghella's thriller about desire and deception on the Mediterranean. In this episode, we'll return to Italy with Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino's coming of age film about a 17-year-old falling hard for a visiting American doctoral student in the summer of 1983. Timothy Chalamet stars as Elio Perlman, the precocious son of an intellectual couple who spends his days reading books, transcribing music, and gnawing on fruit from the family orchard. Army Hammer plays Oliver, a 24-year-old student who's in Italy for a summer internship with Elio's father, a professor of archaeology played by Michael Stuhlbarg. Elio and Oliver develop a friendship that steadily grows into a much more profound intimacy. The only problem is that summer ends, and what do you do with those feelings once it does? We'll talk about that after the break.
2: Thank you so much
1: I can show you around. That'd be great. Thank you. So what do you do
2: around here? Read books transcribe music swim at the river go out at night sounds fun all right later (laughs) just watch this is how we'll say goodbye to us when the time comes later
1: (laughs) meanwhile we'll have to put up with him for six long
0: weeks
2: (laughs) muscles are firm not a straight body in these statues they're all curved Sometimes impossibly curved and so nonchalant Hence their ageless ambiguity As if they're daring you to desire them
0: All oh, to see
2: without my eyes The first time that you give. Is there anything you don't know? Boundless by the time I cry You only knew how little I know about the things that matter Build your walls around What things that matter? You know what things?
0: You're saying what I think you're saying?
1: Shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. I want to give everyone's thoughts on Call Me By Your Name. Who wants to start?
0: I'll start. I loved it.
1: Yeah.
2: The end. No. <laughs>
1: Great. Wrap no, it up. I yeah. did, too. You, like, you love it, too? Yeah, I love it, too. Okay, then, we let's, then we're done. Okay. All
2: right. I, I won't go into any detail. Okay. Well, go, go ahead. We'll let you, we'll let you go. I <laughs> know. Uh, it's a movie that so creeps up on you watching it, or at least that was my experience, mm-hmm. where it's it's sort of this you know, wonderfully escapist in some ways drama, you know, I, I wanted to eat some apricots and hang out with him in, in that, in that house, you know, uh, spend my days a little bit, a little bit lazily. The relationship from the characters, you know, develops so slowly and, and, you know, lazily at the, at the pace of a summer, it's a sort of generously paced film. And then by the end, Good lord, this film is so emotionally wrenching. I mean, I mean it's, <laughs> And you feel the heartbreak. You've been through this whole summer with these people and you can feel Elio's heartbreak at the end of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's remarkable. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it's a sensual film mm-hmm. in all respects of the word. And I've watched this film twice now and I, neither time I came away feeling particularly devastated by the ending. And mm-hmm. I think that is wholly because of Michael Stuhlbarg's speech that he, uh, he gives to Elio uh, shortly before that and kind of talking about, you know, how lucky he is to have felt something so strongly. And even though it comes with this loss, like, giving up that loss would come with giving up everything that it comes with. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, we end on this beautiful, long shot of Timothy Chalamet staring into the fire with that Sufjan Stevens song playing, like, I can't really feel that sad. Like, I feel emotional, like, as in full of emotion. Mm -hmm. But I don't, Feel particularly like sad for the character because it feels like this summer and this experience is ultimately something that has formed him as a person. And that's a
2: good thing. I think that's an appropriate feeling after the credits are done. (laughs) But I think in the moment, uh, I I can't help but feeling um, how sad Elio has become.
0: I just (laughs) like watching boys cry. He'll uh, he'll
2: find his way again. Um, It's hard. I I think it's, I, I think doesn't Donna Bowman have a whole thing about how, Men crying on film just rarely works. Yeah, or in life. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but uh, maybe. I mean, you're so close to being the the Dawson's Creek gif if, you're, if you don't if you don't do it well.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's a, a beautiful moment. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not saying because I wasn't sad by it, I wasn't affected by it. But, you know, there there is that little element of joy to it, you know, that there, I, I can't let go of. It's a great
1: gift. I mean, we're kind of skipping ahead in a way to get to the <laughs> Stuhlbark speech because it's so important. Everything that he says to his son is so great. I mean, it's a great bit of fathering just because he's telling him that these feelings – First of all, he's validating this relationship, which mm-hmm. is not that time and place, not a common thing. But he's also expressing what I think is the theme of the film, which is how important it is to feel things. I think yeah. that, that's the thing that kind of carries through from the beginning to the end and why it's the, this, such a sensual experience all the way through. You really feel this film. And then this character played by Timothy Chalamet, Elio, is to hold on to that emotion and not be left cold by it i mean the, the worst reaction i think his father is saying that he could have to the end of this relationship is to go dead you know and to not allow himself to open up to someone else open up to other possibilities and feel again and so i think that's kind of where the film lands this just the last 30 minutes of the film just destroyed me <laughs> on second viewing today i just was crushed from the moment when they go off together for their last little
2: go mm-hmm. around
1: until from that point until the very end it was just kind of crushing to see and that's in the way that something like before sunset or excuse me before sunrise is where it's just like there's only so much time until the train comes and they're going to have to be separated and what is going to happen to their lives after that and instead of approaching that moment with caution they go through it with all of their heart all the way to the end and that's just That kills me. I think that that's such a beautiful thing to do.
0: I I like what you say about this film being just about feeling things generally, because I think that extends to the filmmaking and its focus on just sensory experience. Like, one of the things that sticks out to me in this movie is just like, how high the ambient sounds are in the mix and, you know, so there's this aural component. Obviously, it's a beautifully shot film. There's this visual component and it's just like, oh, it's so cliche to say it's a feast for the zen is, but, you mm-hmm. know, like it does it does kind of like inundate all your your senses, um, I guess, not touch. But, you know, you could, you could smell that apricot juice, totally, right? You yeah. Know? <laughs> or I know
1: mean, I, I wanted the, some of Stuhlbarg's uh, espresso as well. That yeah. sounded amazing yeah. <laughs> after after a long night of sleep to wake up and have, have a nice espresso and fresh apricot juice, which God, I mean, how much do those characters enjoy that every time they're treated to apricot juice? I should have studied archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's got all the benefits. But the other, the other thing I would mention too, in addition to the sound, is the camera it's an emotional camera and one of the shots that really stood out for me in the film and i don't know if you'll remember it well maybe you remember it because it's kind of something he flashes back on at the end is just the shot of them in the town square and the camera makes a fairly strange seemingly unmotivated move upwards towards the top of this monument before moving back down to the the characters and it just it feels like it's engaged uh, in the action and I think I call it an emotional camera it reminds me of that film I am Cuba which has had it had the same sort of technique of just constantly moving the camera and having that trigger so an emotional response from the audience and that was kind of a small moment where that happened for me
0: yeah what like sticks out to me about that scene is kind of the staging of it in addition to the way it is filmed in terms of them kind of like circling each other you know like they start at the same point in the circle that surrounds the monument they proceed along opposite sides of it before they come back to meet yeah. at, the, at the top of the circle and like there's a moment where Oliver kind of is hidden behind, you know, because we're we're from Elio's perspective, so we can't see Oliver. And it's just, it's so beautifully encapsulating the uncertainty and the fear and the daring of that moment of what he's saying. And it's, yeah, just the way it's captured both in the staging and the camera work, a really great scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, the power of them being separated and coming together as they Mm -hmm. do, that's a good... Point. i also really love uh, you're talking about great shots the shot of um, them riding off on their bikes and the camera just holding that shot as they go off into the distance together mm-hmm. again a beautiful and, and, and
0: again a, a shot where they first separate and then come back together Yeah, you know like elio speeds off ahead of oliver and then kind of slows so that they can come back together there's a lot of, in this movie again with staging where elio is sort of like Barging ahead or barging away from Oliver and I think it just sort of underlines the precocious nature of his character and I think kind of does a lot to make this relationship between a younger boy and an older man not feel as squeamish as it could because Elio is so seemingly advanced for, for his age and that carries through to just the way that he, you know, forges ahead through a scene.
1: Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be anything predatory, I guess, about the 24-year-old either. No,
0: and I mean, he Oliver is, like, very, very tentative. And he is, like, always following Elio's lead. Like, he seems very aware from that moment where he kind of attempts to massage Elio and Elio backs away, like from that moment, he's like, okay, like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do anything else, you know? So yeah. like Elio has to be the instigator, you know, and that is hard for Elio because he doesn't know what he's doing. And it just kind of contributes to this beautiful tension between them that, when it does finally get resolved makes it that much more rewarding.
1: Yeah, I do like that little massage bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the, the reflection on it later on, it's like, I was trying to do make yeah. a move there <laughs> and he didn't really pick up on it, you kid. Know, but, but there's a the degree, I mean, to which Elio is precocious and, and, and advanced and extremely sophisticated for his age, but he is also a work in progress who doesn't mm-hmm. really know who he is. I mean, he's on, in terms of his sexuality, on some kind of a spectrum of, you know, given that he also has a relationship with marja uh maybe he definitively goes more a little more on one end of the yeah, spectrum I mean, than the other i think a, her heart,
0: a lot but, of gay men probably have an experience like that in their past and it doesn't make them
1: some prom photos. some prom photos know?
2: right I don't think the movie gives enough evidence to make a final determination on that. It just as you know, it's not often easy to do that in life either.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the movie is also not particularly interested in defining or expressing some sort of universal gay experience or, or remarking upon it anyway, like it is very much about this specific relationship and whether Elia will go on to have only male male relationships or whether he will go on to have relationships with many different genders like it doesn't really matter in the context of this film which is about
1: these two people that aspect of it almost makes me feel really protective of this film in terms of it getting deep enough into the culture to where it becomes a thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way i kind of want it to remain this small specific thing that we can appreciate rather than being part of the conversation and and being freighted
2: the conversation (laughs) it's always bad just
1: (laughs) yeah sometimes it's good no, yeah but but th- in this case it would be bad <laughs> uh, and i and i know this film has kind of like tiptoed into that area in a way that kind of freaks me out but it hasn't quite taken off to the stratosphere yet so i'm grateful people so
0: seem a- very protective of this film for the most part like the people who like it i think recognize its specialness and aren't necessarily i think so inclined to pick it apart
1: and it's a one of those things one of those movies that i watch and maybe tasha tasha i know was not as thrilled with this film yeah. as the rest of us so I, <laughs> tasha was the outlier <laughs> she was the outlier so i don't want to say i feel like suspicious of people who aren't seduced by this film in some way it uses the tools of the medium to such seductive effect and if you're i don't know how you can love movies and be completely resistant to it you know am i wrong no <laughs> maybe i'm wrong
0: no no i'm, I'm trying to like reconcile that with the fact that like as much as i loved this movie i am less certain that it is one that is going to like stick with me for years and years to come like it and i think that that may go back to just my feeling about the ending and like not feeling particularly emotionally devastated mm-hmm. moved certainly but not like memorably so by by the ending and it like it feels like the more and more i think about it it just feels like a very pleasant viewing experience yeah. and that is a good thing and that doesn't detract from the film at all but i feel like it maybe makes it feel a little less enduring than it could be mm. but that's hard that's hard to say <laughs> having just rewatched it's a sca-
1: it's a it's an escapist
0: Experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying, yeah. trying to, it, to get at. Like, what, do you,
2: it, what are you going to think about next time uh, "Love My Way" plays? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> God, I love that dance. That, that, I mean,
0: that I I admit I don't come across that song that often on a daily basis. Mm. So, on the when I do hear it, yes, I will probably think of it. You're not
2: film. a 44 year old man <laughs> with uh, Sirius XM
1: radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are some good uh those albums that's a good that was a pretty yeah. good period was that the, like the towards the end of when psychedelic furs were good mm, that's kind or was of that the
2: true, sweet yeah. sweet spot towards the sweet spot yeah. I yeah actually
0: actually, that's a good segue to before we move on to connection something i did want to talk about with this film i guess we could talk about it in connection to talent mr ripley but i don't think we're planning to so i want to talk a little bit about like the period and like how yeah. this does work as a movie in in 1983 and like For so much of this movie, it feels like it could be any of several decades, you know, and you do get these little moments like at the discotheque and stuff like that, but... What struck me on my second viewing was how the political atmosphere of the era is kind of like percolating in the background, like the, I guess the 83 Italian general election was happening. And we do have some little like hints of that in in the background. And it actually reminded me a lot of The Graduate in our discussion of <laughs> sort of how the era played out in the background of this story. But other than little reminders like that, so much of this movie just feels like it could be in any year.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think lifestyle wise, if it ain't broke, you know what I mean? Like, why would you want to do anything differently than ride those bikes around? And and if you're these people anyway, live as they do. Uh, And I I think the film acknowledges that in a very uh, clever way by identifying the location as somewhere in northern Italy rather than any place specific. So we haven't talked about the performances because those have been getting quite a bit of acclaim. I mean, Timothy Chalamet won two awards Mm -hmm. in our own (laughs) uh, guild for both Best Actor and Most Promising. Performer. This uh, guy is
0: talking about the Chicago Film Critics Association. The Chicago Film Awards. Critics
1: Association. So he cleaned up, and and uh, you know everyone is into to Army Hammer and his uh, his kind of wedding reception dance moves. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you think? What do you think about the performances?
2: I'll work backwards actually with with uh, Stuhlbarg, uh who who plays Elio's father, and and I spent a lot of the movie thinking you know, I'm glad Michael Stuhlbarg is in this um, and, but I don't know if it needs Michael Stuhlbarg. And then you get to this one scene, it just brings everything about the movie all together. And it's just beautifully expressed in this long monologue that, that, that he, he doesn't overplay it. I mean, it's just very sort of, it's, it's a strangely matter of fact expression of the, Deepest feelings this man has to convey to yeah. his son, it's so beautiful. Chalamet is as one of those performances where you think maybe he'll he'll get a lot of acclaim for his next performance because he's such a new face, and you know this is you know a movie he shares with Armie Hammer, and, and to a large degree wasn't necessarily get best lead actor, but but I'm glad he is. He's fantastic in this, and Hammer is so charming. It's one of those things where it's like, well, okay, maybe it's okay that those big Hollywood movies didn't really work out for him all that well because he's just as comfortable. He's more comfortable in this world, really.
1: He, he's a, he's the soulful Jude Law character. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Timothy Chalamet is just so incredible. I in mean, like a lot of that, again, I think just boils down to his presence. He has one of those faces that, like, looks different from so many different mm-hmm. angles. And this character, like, you feel like you can watch him changing, like, physically changing throughout the movie. And he seems so young at the beginning and part of that is like walking around in that bathing suit with that concave chest that he just like you know you could like break him and he just looks yeah. like such a little boy and then like compare that to him at the end with this sort of like flock of seagulls hair you know and <laughs> i don't know like to what degree that is just like how timothy chalamet looks and is versus like performance but it's just such a great match of actor and role
1: it's such a great performance it's, it's, the greatness of it almost eluded me on first viewing because it's invisible in a way mm-hmm. he doesn't it, it's not showy none of these performances are showy um, i
0: mean he cries a fair amount this is, but,
1: like, but, 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 but the one point i wouldn't make in terms of him is you're saying he does seem older as the film progresses but i mean there is a point towards the end of the film where he's in the car with his mom and crying mm-hmm. and i mean i mean what is more a little boy than that having your mom pick you up from some place and then and then crying all the way home it's uh, like
0: in ladybird when Laurie metcalf picked up sure Ronan from timothy chalamet's house and <laughs> cried on the way home it,
1: it seems only just <laughs> which also
0: it? featured a sexual nosebleed scene in mm. ladybird with timothy chalamet
1: i feel mm. pretty good cuz i cuz as uh, well as you uh, you all know but i uh, listen don't i get nosebleeds a lot <laughs> that's a great but year they're triggered the tr- they're triggered not by anything it just happens but that is interesting those are connections why yeah. if only if only one of them were already an established classic film we could Give it have a couple years we could have compared them but we should actually look for other connections perhaps between call me by your name and the talent of mr ripley and so we'll be right back uh, to make them after the break
2: So World War II, huh? Uh, no, this is World War I. Oh. You have to be at least 80 years old to have you known any of them.
1: Oh. I've never even heard of the Battle of Piave.
2: Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. He well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter?
1: You know what things.
0: Why are you telling me
2: this? Because I thought you should know? Because you thought I should know. know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to
1: know. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And one very big thing they have in common is Italy when it's nice and sunny and, <laughs> and uh, seems very very uh, seductive. Is this the same Italy? It seems it certainly seems
2: it's that a way. It's different regions though. I mean the yeah. south and the north were until recently, fairly recently, different countries in, in many ways. And But I think you get a more a more verdant uh, shady Italy in uh, to Call Me By Your Name. Then you, you get sort of the, the sun-drenched, sandy Italy of, of, of the south and the talent Mr. Ripley.
0: Call Me By Your Name is just much more secluded, too, both in terms of the manner. I guess, we'll, we'll call it, you know, or orchard, I suppose. But Talitha, Mr. Ripley feels a lot more cosmopolitan for, like, they're in cities, for one, mm-hmm. for one thing, and they are kind of jumping around between a bunch of them. And there's just a lot of people and stuff happening, whereas in Call Me By Your Name, like, in those scenes when they go into town, there's barely anyone there. And, yeah. and you know, and I don't know if that's meant to be the how the town always is or if it's one of those places that clears out for the summer like we don't really get that context but you do kind of have the feeling that these people are kind of the only people you know yeah. you know hanging around and, and town to mr ripley it's it's just a bigger swath of the culture that we're seeing
1: yeah i mean in fact uh in call me by your name Oliver asks straight up what do you do around yeah. here <laughs> you know all his answer is that he kind of reads and waits for the summer to end really but yeah. um, that is a good point in terms of the regional specificity of both but I would say that both films are Doing everything they can to emphasize the sensuality, the the, the sun, the feel of being in this, the
0: shirtlessness, the shirtlessness, <laughs> like the, the, you
1: know, just flat out kind of golden beauty of everything. Do you get a sense of like the vividness of certain items, uh, the apricots, I guess, and uh, call me by your name. But like when they get the ice box and in, mm, in the town, of yeah. Mr. Ripley and the, those beers. I mean, you can really just you know, it's like a four dimensional effect to see them uh, drink a beer on a hot day. So that's just in both cases i think really great filmmaking and really good photography too they're both quite beautifully photographed mm. yeah.
0: and we don't see them only and we don't see italy only in the summer in these movies you know yeah. like call me by your name very pointedly ends at hanukkah actually yeah. it might be the same night of hanukkah that we are recording this because is this the definitive hanukkah movie between this and Meyerwitz stories which does not actually take place at hanukkah but i've seen it put forth as, yeah. a, as a Hanukkah movie. It's been a good year this for eight, Hanukkah movies like that both, aren't Hanukkah the, movies. The, the last,
1: this is a last night of Hanukkah movie. All, all the candles think, are burning at one I think
0: I think it's only seven. Is
1: it? I thought I saw all of them and the shamash. All right well, up, we I'll,
0: I'll I'll defer to you, Scott <laughs> <laughs> but still i
1: mean it's, it's it was good to see that little Hanukkah representation on screen yeah <laughs> and, it's an underserved holiday well, and, it, and tell to Mr
0: Ripley like there's also some scenes in, in winter right isn't yeah he's, goes,
1: well he's, it's isn't it Christmas time when uh Freddie comes calling yeah you last? yeah,
0: so it's it's interesting that like winter is kind of when things start to fall apart in, in both of these stories or, or just when when things get not so lovely this yeah. the summer is a very important part of the italy component i think yeah in terms I mean, of the appealing nature of it
1: uh, a Me by name is particularly good at giving you that feel of summer and just drifting into this mm-hmm. relationship in a really organic even unexpected way uh, and the way
0: it speeds up as you get to the end because, you know, their their relationship doesn't really fully form until kind of the final weeks. Then they're bemoaning how little time they have left, you know. And that's kind of how summer feels, too. You know, it's like, oh, crap, it's August. How did <laughs> <laughs> that happen? <laughs>
1: uh, definitely. It, one of the things the two films have in common as well is an American character and a European character. And Ripley you have... They're both American, both Dickie and, and Tom, but you have a visitor from America coming mm-hmm. to, to Italy in the form of Tom Ripley, and then you have a visitor in the form of Oliver, Army Hammer's character, coming to Italy, and, and you get a kind of an interesting contrast between cultures,
2: right? And Elio is is cosmopolitan. He's many things, but he's not, wouldn't call him Italian either. You I know? mean,
0: his mother's French, right. and his girlfriend, Marja, is French, French. you know, Timothy Chalamet, like he's got some some linguistic skills. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if he's like naturally fluent in in three languages, but you know he he pulls it off.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he really does. Kind of go in and out of everything just fine. I guess that's Europe for you. Yeah. But it,
2: is, it yeah. also is, it is a long tradition of James Ivory did the screenplay for this. Also did the screenplay for A Room with a View, and it's there's a long tradition of stories where. Italy is a place where you go where the rules of your culture don't quite apply kind of there's a space that's created for love to happen that might not happen otherwise and so on and so forth you're away from your own culture and you're in a place where you know it plays into a stereotype but you know maybe it's, it's more sensual the blood mm-hmm. runs a little hotter in, in Italy uh, I mean sp-
0: people are constantly lying on top of each other in this movie sure. you know like there's the physical closeness between parents and children and you know even like what the very first scene when Oliver arrives and Marja, Marcia I'm not sure how how to pronounce her name but like she she kisses him you, you know like yeah. that's just how people greet each other there's a physical affection built into the culture that is not necessarily in america she,
2: she love it she's, <laughs> she's a big hugger uh, <laughs> and, and, tina
0: and, belcher noise
1: <laughs> and, and there's also for anyone overseas for these americans going overseas um, there's always that possibility of reinvention, of of being able to define yourself and and spin some sort of new narrative that you could not back in your old life. This is a new place; these are new people, and there are new possibilities as far as you know, adapting or or ingratiating yourself into this culture and getting the most out of it that you can.
0: That said, like Oliver is incredibly at ease; like he never feels like intimidated by the culture the way that I think Tom Ripley can be. Like Oliver, I think, kind of represents sort of an American. Like character type, just in terms of being so voracious and larger than life. Yeah. You know, like that, the, the detail about him only being able to have one soft boiled egg because if he has one then he'll have two then he'll have three <laughs> and then he'll have five. Like, you know, he's just someone who lives life at full volume, you know. And, and
2: aggressively casual.
1: Yes. Later. later. <laughs> well, <laughs> and also, and also just in one minor example of that early in the film is uh, he doesn't come down for dinner. Yeah. I mean, this is like the first chance I suppose that he has to dine with his family. I'm sure they've prepared something f- for him and he's like, oh, I just tell him
0: Tom Ripley would never make that mistake no he, he <laughs> you are invited not. to dinner it, it, you show up to dinner
1: <laughs> I wonder if it's a mistake you know I think I think you know Oliver's probably used to things going his way <laughs> and the, the world yeah. bending to his I mean a bit. He, yeah
0: I think we're definitely supposed to like see that as a very sort of privileged character who has not had a lot of strife in his life and that makes him appealing well he's you know? he's
1: he's good Jude Law <laughs> <laughs> He's benevolent, Dickie Greenleaf. Um, though probably doesn't have quite as much wealth, but maybe that makes him more, even more appealing. Yeah, give
0: it time; he's a good-looking white dude. Hey, <laughs> he beca- he'll become a Winkle boss. He was,
1: <laughs> he only was. 1983. Yeah, he'll get all of the. He'll get both sides because there's only one of them. He'll yeah. get the other non-existent Winklevoss's money. One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about in either segment that plays a really huge role in both is the music, mm-hmm. um, which you know they're so. Many big musical moments in 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 both films, should we we should talk about those, right? let's go with uh Ripley since we haven't mm-hmm. before the Tuva file Americano mm. scene, which is great. I mean, because yeah. that's the height of things going great with Tom and Dickie when Dickie takes him to this For club sure. and brings him on stage and makes him part of that world. And I mean, the, the joy that Ripley feels being able to be that cool and on stage mm-hmm. and be able to participate that closely with, with some of the, these already so thunderstruck by it comes across really well. And I was actually reading up a little bit on, the song it's kind of a clever twist on the song because the song is about an italian person who is living off his parents' wealth hmm. and acting like a acting like a hotshot american yeah. and so it's kind of like a little twist on that song but it plays great in the movie
0: the talented mr ripley scene that kind of sticks out to me in terms of the way it uses music is a very early scene where tom is studying jazz you know (laughs) when he when he's getting all his his ducks in a row before he heads out to woo dickie and he's sort of educating himself about jazz and like i love the use of the classical jazz divide particularly like jazz isn't sort of improvisational uh, musical form and the way that that is echoed and how Tom has to move through this new life and constantly improvising and picking up what others are putting down, so to, so to speak. So I, I just love the way that that scene sort of seeds that quality and establishes kind of the theme behind the use of jazz music in the film.
2: I feel like there's a lot of good jazz music <laughs> I feel like it just really especially when jazz starts to fade into the background it's when the trouble starts you know mm-hmm. it's, it is it is sort of this this high spirited bop, bop maybe a little bit of edging in the post bop jazz uh, that they're all listening to and it's all really great and also I like that Chet Baker is featured so prominently in that scene you're talking about too and he's not you can't tell if it's a man or a woman I think that kind of uh, funny uh, Valentine, nice, little, yeah. nice little touch for the character too and, and I think mm. boy that's uh, kind of telling you that, that that, that sort of melancholy, sensual, romantic tone of, of, of the Chet Baker recording that tells you how you're going to feel over the course of this film, too, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and, and that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that until you pointed it out, that the jazz does recede into the background, the the worse things get for Tom, and the opera and classical, uh, that was so much his life before he I went know. to he Italy. He loves that he's so yeah. excited
1: to go to the opera. Yeah, um, But I, there's that bit, though, I think, where there might be a tipping point where he sings by uh, Funny Valentine mm-hmm. to Dickie with so much longing. And and it's it's this great expression of his, but also a deeply uncomfortable moment, where I think that if Dickie were to really pay attention and recognize who he's really talking about in that song who he's really singing to that he would be freaked out by it probably mm-hmm. so I, I like that aspect too and the other thing i wanted to mention as well and is there a couple of transitional cuts this was edited by walter murch who's an absolute genius he, he edited apocalypse now among other, many what other credits are Walter? well i murch? wrote
2: one of the best books about film ever but, which is the in the blink of an eye in by the blink by of an eye, murch. Right. but uh He's just
1: a genius, and there's, there's a bit where um, there's kind of a vocal thing that Jude Law does where he imitates the sound of of drums, and that mm, leads right into, yeah, right, in, yeah. right into a jazz scene.
0: Yeah, when Dickie asks why he does that spooky thing with his neck on the train, oh, and like mm-hmm. spooky ke- 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 becomes <laughs> yeah. a cymbal noise. Yeah, that's a, like a beautiful interplay of kind of script plus performance plus editing. Yeah, I moment. mean,
1: like, it's one of those things where the film is just as production is so classy all around like the collaboration is so good. Um, it's not
0: as classy though as the way music is used in Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. You know, like you want classy. That's something, like the guy spends his day transcribing classical music. That is true.
1: <laughs> that is true. And I just I you know, I love big pop music moments and I mean you can't you can't beat the psychedelic furs can you
0: yeah Mm. but that's i mean maybe it's just an era thing that you guys are are, well and i mean it's a great scene i understand why you guys are fixing it up but to to me like the musical moment that i think about is when ilio is at the piano and oliver comes in and is like asking him about what he was playing outside on the guitar because of course he plays both (laughs) and he's like kind of talking about like play it like bach would play it like he's playing the song like all these different ways and like kind of like showing off basically you know like it doesn't No, I think it is an important scene, just kind of in terms of again, showing Elio's precociousness, but also like showing the attraction going the other way. Because I think so much of Call Me By Your Name, like it's, I mean, you look at Army Hammer, it's like, of course, obviously he's in love with him. Who wouldn't be in love with him, you know? (laughs) And I think it's important that we get those little moments through Oliver's eyes of why Elio is so special, you know? And that is a moment where he's, I mean, Elio's being a bit of a dick in that moment. Like, I mean, you know, he's still in his sort of like prickly, stage, but he's also clearly incredibly, like smart and talented and alluring in his way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got it. He does have to make up a certain amount of ground with yeah. Army Hammer, who is inhumanly pretty. And there's the, the other the other thing, I guess, too, in terms of music and "Call Me by Your Name" are the Sufjan. Steven's mm. songs, which mm. I, I think play great, what do you all think? Oh, about yeah,
0: it? absolutely. I, I was going to say the last one especially, but they're both perfectly used in the, in the, in the film. So.
1: And, and, and that's an audacious choice. This is not some piece of music that's being dug up this is music done for the film did you uh, see
0: the item go by the, the, like an early version of this where uh Sufjan stevens like did the voiceover as the adult Elio.
1: oh wow i so, can't imagine. well yeah. you can never imagine yeah. like how a film would be ruined surely By i, I think that. we
0: landed on just the right amount of Sufjan stevens and and call me by your name
1: yeah he can be a pretty divisive guy among uh among music aficionados right some some find him too precious i'm into it me too yeah, yeah. One of the things that Telling Mr. Ripley and Call Me By Your Name have in common is, you know, life, I guess, in and a little bit out of the closet. You have two characters who are trying to figure things out in terms of uh, who they're attracted to and being also being in a at a, a time and in, in, in place that would be unfriendly to the desire that they feel.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a little less the case in terms of Elio. Um, not necessarily the time and place like i don't think uh 1983 italy would be particularly welcoming of homosexual lifestyles but his uh, specific personal experience and he, uh, with his incredibly supportive family, yeah. it's it's what allows it to be such a tender and heartfelt story as opposed to an anxiety-inducing one. I uh, <laughs> I rewatched Call Me by Your Name uh, with uh, some friends, all of whom are gay men, and it was really fascinating and amusing to me to watch them like slowly realize that there wasn't going to be an element of them getting caught. You know, and, like, how much fear they all felt that, like, oh, they're going to get found out, you you know, and it's going to go bad. This is going to go bad. And it never goes bad, really, other than, you know, ending the way that relationships tend to end and that being sad. But, like, in terms of being found out or discovered as gay, like, that's not really a fear that hangs over Call Me By Your Name.
2: We also get the sense they're in kind of a rarefied circle as well. There's the openly gay couple that that comes to dinner and there's no attempt to hide who they are how they're living and, and and i think within this sort of protective area that, that sort of relationship could exist
0: yeah so basically elio has like the easiest coming out of the closet scenario you know he could but it's still not easy yeah you know I, I think he
1: doesn't i think he doesn't really know how his parents are going to react yeah. he doesn't
0: uh, i don't think he even knows how he feels yet. yeah yeah like he, he, you know he's still he, but he's
1: concerned he, about whether his mom knows mm-hmm. right I mean and, but and she eventually, does
0: she uh, def- she's the one who suggests they go off uh, on, on their little oh, vacation so
1: because you think that Stuhlbarg is wrong in, in, in saying that he doesn't oh, think I th- yeah, I, th- I think
0: he's saying that for Elio's benefit because he would be embarrassed because there's like that earlier scene where Oliver Elio and Michael Silvark's character are, like, uh, uh, Elio says something about almost having sex the night before and, like, they're talking very casually about mm. sex and then the mom kind of says something and they're like, nothing, nothing, you know? Okay. But I think she is very aware of um, something going on between her son and Oliver like if you watch that actress like every time one of them leaves and then the other one follows them which happens so many times in this movie like she's always watching like and then she is the one who says at the end like maybe Elio should take Oliver to say goodbye. Like, I think it would be good for them. And it's
2: obvious in the final scene that she knows. I yeah.
0: Think. For, yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: And, and by contrast, uh, mm-hmm. the tale of Mr. Ripley, there is that, that line that Ripley is trying to cross with Dickie, who, the bath scene being the most prominent example of just like, if I kind of just say this thing that could be interpreted as a joke or not, you know, I'm going to get some kind of a signal that's yeah. not going to get me hurt <laughs> or, right. or, or not result in some, catastrophic scene where where that that relationship ends. so so the threat there is real because genevieve is feeling it in the head of <laughs> her stomach watching yes. the movie
0: do you think that the closet door shutting at the end of talented mr ripley is supposed to be a literal symbol
1: Yeah,
2: probably.
0: maybe <laughs> because so. if so i like it a little less
1: <laughs>
2: yeah no. I thought when the rat ran across the, <laughs> across the ledge before oh, the credits rolled, that was a little too I like too
1: the on of The Departed, man. <laughs> I just, I thought, I think that, you know, it's just, know, well, we won't talk about The Departed, but I'll... I'll it did occur to me, Genevieve,
2: uh, but I think it's not so in your face that it's obnoxious. Yeah, yeah I, it is a closet, though, isn't it? Have a
0: mirrored uh, closet, and like, yeah. man, man, that movie loves mirrors and reflections and, and split reflections. You
1: know? Yeah, uh, for sure. It uh,
0: loves it as much as Call Me by Your Name loves apricots and various stone fruits.
1: Yeah, as well as well, uh, both of them should. <laughs> I kind of want to. I want to talk just a tiny little bit about both films as being prestige films. One thing that's interesting about Call Me by Your Name is that it's written by James Ivory, who, along with his producer Ishmael Merchant and his co-screenwriter uh, Ruth Power Javala, they own the art house from about from the late '80s through, say, the mid. 90s with films like A Room with a View and Howard's End and Remains of the Day. And there was a certain just intelligent, well-appointed, popular, heart-rending art house film that they specialized in. And the talent of Mr. Ripley is part of that tradition as well because, you know, Miramax at that time, or really Miramax throughout its existence, did kind of put forward, I guess, if you wanted to be mean about it, sort of middle brow, but, but a lot of decorous period pieces they specialize in with filmmakers like Lasse Hallstrom and John Madden and Mangala. I think these. These guys are great at it mm-hmm. in a way that so few people are. I mean, I, I felt watching Talon, Mr. Ripley, I just felt such an acute loss of Minghella as a filmmaker, as somebody who could, who's capable of doing a Ripley or, a, or an English patient and really carrying you along in these sort of rich Literary, you know, broadly accessible art house films, and no one's really taken their place. And I don't even think "Call Me by Your Name" necessarily falls in that tradition, other than James Ivory writing it. It has it's way more sensual and arty, and kind of. In I mean, it
0: does the, have a literary back. It's, adapta- yeah. it's an adaptation,
1: yeah. but it, but I think the director's approach. To it is a little not as staid or not as classical. Mm -hmm. There's something. There's kind of there's a lack of reserve that I think was characteristic. It's more jazz
0: like than classical, would you say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. But I was but I was pleased to see them both so closely together, just as a revival of that type of movie
2: done as well. Yeah, I I agree, and I, I feel like Merchant Ivory for a while became sort of shorthand for too tasteful and and, mm-hmm. and not adventurous but the good ones are really good i mean have, i didn't love every Ivory movie i saw no. and i and, and i dropped off a little toward the end uh when they became less of a thing you know yeah. but but boy howardson and, and Remains of the day and room with the view these are these are great movies yeah
1: remains of the day never better emma thompson never better anthony Hopkins. no
2: I, I know yeah room with yeah. the view is also oh. you know we could have paired room with the view with with this really easily too
1: but well, then we wouldn't have gotten tortured Genevieve again.
2: Yeah, but it's, it's very much another another uh, rules don't apply in Italy, and and you know it makes you want to you know upend your life and move to Italy now just for the sheer beauty of it kind of movie. Now more than ever, I have to
1: say, the talent Mister Ripley is available to stream on Stars if you have Stars, and it's available for rental on the usual services. You can also get it on Blu-ray and DVD. Call Me By Your Name is currently in Art House Cinemas Nationwide, and hopefully it will stay there for a little bit. Uh, We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
0: I want to recommend a movie I saw about a month ago, but has really stuck with me since then, which is D. Rees' Mudbound, which is a Netflix original movie that's making some minor waves this awards season, and for good reason. This is a weighty film in both theme and tone, with a story that tackles the intermingling shadows of history and race that loom over the American South. Uh, it considers the fraught relationship between two families sharing the same plot of land in the days following the close of World War II, the McGallans, who are white and return from the city to farm the family land, and the Jacksons, black sharecroppers who have been working and living on that land in hopes of one day being able to have their own. This already fraught relationship gains a new level of interest and inevitably tragedy when members of the two families forge a bond based on their shared experience as soldiers returning home from a war that changed them irrevocably. Uh, This narrative takes a really interesting shape in the film via voiceover driven segments that jump from one character to another, filling in backstory and filling out moments we've seen from other characters' perspectives. Uh, It's one of those films that you don't really feel like you have a full handle on until the final moments when it all comes together into this incredible crushing hole. It's nicely filmed, taking its title as an organizing visual principle. There's mud everywhere. Mm. (laughs) But the performances are what really stand out here. They're really excellent across the board, but I want to highlight the two actors playing those returning soldiers, Garrett Headland as Jamie McAllen and Jason Mitchell, who played Easy e in Straight Out of Compton, playing Ronsell Jackson. Uh, together and separately, they give this film its heart. And both are wonderful surprises in a film that found a lot of ways to surprise me. Um, it's not really an easy watch but it's a rewarding one and I've like I said I found myself returning to it in my mind uh, in the time since I've watched it I suggest you do the same Mudbound it's on Netflix
2: I'm glad you brought that up because it's a terrific movie and it's a movie I feel like I don't know Netflix I don't want to be down on Netflix but they they just don't have the thing down where they you know the movies they put out feel like Important movies that we should be talking about, and and uh, this is an important movie we should be talking about. But it you know it skipped theaters for the most part, mm-hmm. and it's just another thing that shows up on Netflix. And they're, I'm not sure they're great at like promoting what they've got this is something that that should not just be vanishing into the m section after a week of maybe getting the top spot on your netflix homepage. maybe not scott have you seen it
1: yeah yeah i like i liked it one and one of the things i I liked about it was how you could see the full spectrum of racism and the way it works Mm -hmm. in the in this in this white family from you know Jonathan Banks, is Jonathan Banks is incredibly detestable. Ins- right, I mean, the you, you, Klansmen and 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 you know, overt virulent racism. I mean, directed towards someone who was just returning from mm-hmm. war but then there is a subtler form of just expecting things expecting mm-hmm. expecting them a, a black family to drop everything and to assist and to be you know just a, an assumption of of the way these roles are supposed to break down so i thought that was really one of the more laudable aspects of, of the film on, on top of the mud i think there was a lot <laughs> there's a lot of mud, a lot of good uh, mud. It's, it's another film too where like that just makes the most out of a limited budget. It makes the right choices and gives you a great sense of, uh, time and place for probably not a massive amount of money. So, uh, I think it's worth checking out, and I have a big, I have a whole theory. I mean, Netflix is one thing, but I have a theory about why certain films about black characters and experiences succeed with awards givers and mm-hmm. others don't. But that that maybe we'll have a chance to draw that out another time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've intrigued you, but um, but I mean, this I, is in, also
0: a film written and directed by a black woman, for yeah. for what it's worth.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully, we'll see be seeing more of her, and you'll 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 find no greater evangelist for Netflix than D. She feels like. Her breakthrough film Pariah was able to find appreciators primarily for being yeah, available. I'm, I may be on, way uh,
2: off. I just, my, my criticisms are not scientific. I'm just sort of like t- testing the type the of uh,
1: No, I mean, there's definitely something this kind of almost straight to video stigma built into Netflix even though these are heavily invested yeah. you know in worthy production. This is
2: a, a top 10 film of the year for me and uh, I, I would like to see it getting a little more attention than it is. Alas. But
1: it's there for you
0: yep.
2: if you want to give it attention. Yep. Just a click away.
0: Please do. Scott, what do you got for us?
1: I'd like to recommend a documentary called The Work mm-hmm. uh, which I saw recently after it made several top 10 lists including Cameron Collins's at The Ringer. He put it at number 2 on his list. Um, the film is about an intensive... Four day group therapy program at Folsom Prison, uh, where inmates and some men from the outside come together to share their feelings with each other. And the results are just absolutely volcanic. You know, many of these men are imprisoned for violent crimes, and you can see how closely that violence commingles with a very base. In immense pain that's been ingrained in them since since their youth. And because they're men and all they know is to express their, their feelings through violence, it's stunning to see those feelings come out in a more positive and openly emotional way. Uh, and in some cases, they have to be coached on how to cry or on how to move their mouths because they don't know how to do it. And when, they, and when it comes out, that's a moment of of tension and danger as well. I mean, there there are scenes where all the other men in the group have to like hold one of them back when he breaks down. I mean, it's that intense. So the film is currently available for rental from the usual outlets. I suspect it'll turn up soon enough on streaming services and I would keep a Box of Kleenex or any other tissues. I shouldn't be advertising Kleenex. I mean, there are all kinds of other <laughs> facial fine tissues. You're facial in, you're, tissues you're in the
2: pockets of uh, big Kleenex.
1: Big Kleenex. That's yeah. right. You
0: can use a handkerchief too if you want that a throwback handkerchief, feel. That's
1: right aloe maybe you can have a little aloe in there <laughs> uh, but i'm just saying it's it's very moving it's called the work and a great year for documentaries it really stands out right. either of you seen the work mm-hmm.
0: no i've heard i've been hearing really good things about it. when when did it come out because i feel like i've just seen a surge of discussion around it lately and I, maybe that might just be because everyone's making their came out best in of October. the year i think it was list. buried
1: underneath a lot of post tiff prestige films that people were paying more attention to it was released by the orchard which got itself all knotted up uh, by the yeah. louis ck movie which they even at the time spent an absurd amount of money for and then of course lived to regret that and it just it well, just what, was- what happened <laughs> we'll
0: talk about it off well, mic yeah, um,
1: but but i think it's one of those movies that people are going to catch up with and, and appreciate because it's an illuminating experience and also it kind of gives you hope for prison as a place where growth and reform is possible you know i mean because you, you, you see it you see it happening and at the very least even if you have people who are there, for life, you know, a real reckoning happening with the sins that have been committed and, and with traumas that have
2: happened in their lives. So, I love it. The work, Keith. I, I will check that out. Um, I, I was just following a uh, Patricia Highsmith uh, tra- train of thought here, and, and Highsmith has been adapted many times, from one from uh, Alfred Hitchcock who did *Strangers on a Train* to *Carol* by uh, Todd Haynes, which is based on Highsmith's uh, pioneering lesbian novel *The Price of Salt*, which she published originally under a different name. I like a film called *The American Friend*, which is another Ripley adaptation. It's an adaptation of of Ripley's game that was released in 1977. It's directed by Vim Venders. It's a faithful Itch adaptation of, of that book, which in, involves you know, forged paintings, uh, sort of his Ripley's later career as uh, uh, in other aspects of, of the criminal life. Here, he plays someone who. Kind of manipulates a dying or very ill picture framer played by Bruno Gans uh, into committing crimes, and plotwise it can it can be a little opaque, especially your first viewing I've seen it in a couple of times stylistically it's it 's quite striking. Dennis Hopper is, is unlikely Tom Ripley, but it works in the context of this film and, and it allows vendors to play with a lot of his obsessions he was working with um, at the time. There's, there's a lot of – not a road movie as such, but there's certainly a lot of travel. And there's a lot of study of, of the way American and European cultures have, have mixed and mingled since, since World War II and – the, you know, the performances are great. Uh, you also get some some very vendors cameos from Nicholas Ray and Samuel Fuller. Um, I, I think it's a, it's really worth your time checking out. It's a it film that um, Highsmith did not care for and then and then did change her mind on. So I, I think it's, a, it's quite good. Have you either of you seen that one?
1: I saw it in college. Mm-hmm. That would have been a while ago.
2: <laughs> I, I saw it on VHS originally, mm-hmm. and I thought it was pretty good. And then I watched it again on Blu-ray. Uh, they just done a beautiful job just restoring the colors of it, the moodiness of it. It is, um, you know, stylistically, it's it's not a noir homage as such, but that feeling of, of a, in a really good noir of you feel like someone has just made a mistake that's thrown them away their life and then sent them down a dark, dark path from which they will never return. Uh, that hangs over this film uh, beautifully. So, I yeah, I would recommend it.
0: It's also on Filmstruck, FYI. Oh, oh how go. about that?
1: I have that. <laughs> i can watch that since i'm liberated myself from uh the year 2017 generally haven't I? have not you all done with your 2017
0: watching? i mean i I, no. I still have to see the work but other than that you know <laughs>
2: there's a bunch of stray titles like that that i haven't seen yeah that's
1: you know. that's, that's i haven't
2: tr- seen tr- film stars don't uh, die in liverpool have you seen yet. rat film no i want to see that i want to see beach rats i want to see all the Rat movies i want to yeah. see i want to see the whole rat extended universe Noctur- have you
1: seen nocturama no. I'm you know, just going through films on my top ten list. Does that have all, all bonus to your next picture. Have you show. seen, have you seen Does that have Brawl in, uh, in Cell Block 99? No. You'll love that.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. It's only, and I hear it's only like four hours long, too.
1: Yep. Not a minute wasted. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out January 9th and 11th. Genevieve, what are we discussing?
0: Listeners who are old enough to remember when Olympic skaters Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were all over the tabloids may remember their story as a sordid tale of a lower-class athlete jealously coordinating a vicious attack to sabotage a more talented rival. So they may find it surprising to hear that Craig Gillespie's new movie I, Tanya not only attempts to rehabilitate Harding's reputation and paint her as a victim in the case, but that it does an excellent and entertaining job of it. Gillespie's movie, based on interviews with Harding and other key figures in the case, openly acknowledges that it's telling a subjective and contested story, full of conflicts of perspective and memory, and it turns that awareness into a lively, funny meta narrative that acknowledges its sources and its audience in turn. Working from a suggestion from Twitter, we realized it would make a great pairing with Gus Van Sant's dark 1995 satire To Die For, another based on a true story criminal comedy about an ambitious woman, a bad marriage, an ill-conceived plot, and a desperate attempt at fame. One of these stories is a little more comic than the other, and one's a little more tragic, but they're both savagely entertaining about what it takes to get ahead in America.
1: It blows my mind that some people don't know the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan thing.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to realize I'm old. Like, uh, like, like, like
1: these are fictional characters. Like, cause Do that you want me was... to
0: tell you how old I was when Talented Mr. Ripley came out again?
2: <laughs> I actually looked up some movies you might have seen in 1999. Did you see Tarzan in the theater? Was that yes. one you yes. saw? Um, Ed TV, maybe that was... Uh... I don't think I did see mm, that A little sophisticated theater. probably yeah, for you at yeah, that yeah, age. Yeah, was a <laughs> <sighs> This is too much for me.
1: Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the Talented Mr. Ripley. Call Me By Your Name, and anything else film-related, we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episodes, where can we find everyone these
2: days, Genevieve?
0: You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith?
2: You can find me at uprox.com where I'm editorial director of film and television and on Twitter at KFips3000. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott
1: underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in such places as the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Variety. And I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog, which had a really great year, I thought. And you can find our absent co-host, Tasha Robinson, at, on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson and at The Verge, where she serves as the film and TV editor. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Penoply Network. Please tune in next time.